We are in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, a biography of the life of Jesus. And if you're just joining us, we're in chapter 9 and looking at a point in Jesus' life where he does three miracles all in a, in a row. Now, before we get started and look at these three miracles, I want to point out something that's really important. When the gospel writers tell you the story of a miracle, it is not just a way to tell you, oh, here's another cool thing that Jesus did, or look how powerful Jesus is. They are including those miracle stories for a specific reason. And we know that because you'll have summary statements. So like in the gospel of Matthew, it will say things like, and then Jesus went proclaiming the kingdom of God and performing many miracles. And you know, okay, he's doing tons of miracles. So then when they decide to zoom in on something specific, they are doing it for a specific reason. It's not merely to demonstrate, oh, look, this cool thing that Jesus did. So you got to take your time and slow down and let all the meaning begin to rise to the surface. Now, we'll be looking at three of those sort of back to back to back. And the first one begins like this. While he was saying these things to them, Behold, now pause, while he was saying these things, if you were here last week, a bit of review, Jesus was talking about how new wine can't be put into old wineskins. Essentially, the point was the new thing that he is doing cannot be contained in the old structure. So while he's talking about that, while he's speaking about that, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now, an interesting note is that the Gospel of Mark, which is a different biographical account of the life of Jesus, includes a couple extra details. Namely, that this ruler that we're talking about is a ruler of a synagogue, and that the girl here, the daughter, is 12 years of age. Now, the reason why that first piece of information is important is Being a ruler of a synagogue made you a part of the in-crowd regarding the sort of the religious elite of the day. Jesus is being loved by sinners and tax collectors, the common people, the outcasts, but the people who have their guard up, and maybe even more than a guard up, they're looking to attack, are the in-crowd, the religious elite and the establishment. Now Jesus um, sees this man who is a ruler of a synagogue, which means, again, he's he's part of of the in-group, likely. And it's possible, we're kind of reading between the lines here, but it's possible that he's resisted going to Jesus up until this point, and now sort of in an act of desperation. You know, his daughter has has just died. There's no other ways to go. He's going to go to Jesus and hope for the miraculous. And we don't know that, but it's quite likely that this is an intense moment of desperation where he finally says, enough, I'm going to this guy. I've seen him healing. Let's see if he could birth some hope for my daughter. And verse 19 says that's what happened. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. So a moment of desperation. My baby girl, my 12-year-old daughter has died. That desperation turns to hope. But that hope then is then immediately interrupted. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, there's tons of stuff going on just in this small section. So let's let's take each piece in detail. First, this woman interrupts the scene and she has a sort of parallel story because we're also told that this woman 
has had this condition for 12 years. So there's a woman with this condition, this ailment, who's been suffering for 12 years, and that's running parallel with a daughter who's died who's 12 years of age. So already you can see within the story structure there's possible parallels taking place. Next it says she has a discharge of blood. Now we don't know exactly what this may be, but it has something to do by the language to do with some type of bleeding from the menstruation cycle. And because of that, we know that at this time period, because of the Old Testament, there were certain laws and regulations that would be in place for someone with this type of ailment. So what I want to do is turn to the book of Leviticus and see exactly what was in place at this time. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean and in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. It's heavy. Leviticus, man. The greatest of all the Old Testament books. It's a difficult book. Okay, so, so some things you have to understand, because as modern people, we immediately import categories for this, this language that was not the categories of thought for these readers. What do I mean by that? When you hear the word unclean and impure, you immediately begin to think in moral categories. You think about right and wrong and sin. So if someone is impure or unclean, whether you think it consciously or not, you immediately think something wrong, that's sin, right? Impure, that's sinful. Unclean, that's sinful. In this time, they are not thinking in categories of morality regarding clean and unclean. It's a whole different world. We have to understand that conceptual world, conceptual world a little bit to understand what's taking place. So in Leviticus chapter 15, there's three broad general categories that make something unclean. One deals with corpses and dead bodies. So if you come into contact with something that's dead, a corpse, that would make you ritually unclean, impure. The second category has to deal with things like skin diseases. So leprosy, leprosy is, is something that we've encountered in the past. We saw how that rendered the man ritually unclean or impure. The third category dealt with any bodily fluid discharge from a man or a woman. So if a man or a woman had a bodily kind of fluid discharge of a number of sorts, that would also render them unclean. Now, what do these three broad categories have in common? All three of these categories deal with mortality, life, and death. So they are in the system of things that give life and give death. And the focus here is on death. So when you read in the scriptures about leprosy, the way they describe the skin disease, it's described as corpse-like. It looks as if something is dying. So things that dwell in the realm of death, dead bodies, bodily discharges, leprosy, skin disease, all of those things represent the forces of death. Now... That is not to come into the holy. Why? Because the holy is where God lives, and God is immortal, not mortal, and he is not of death. 
So in the Old Testament, they had this elaborate system to make things that were unclean, clean. And that was not to make them sinful and not sinful. It was to remove the forces of death, those categories, so that they could be fit for service in the temple and of God, where it's the land of no death, non-death, immortality, God eternal. This is incredibly important. We, like already, we don't think like that. We don't think that these things are a part of the system of death and they should not approach the being who is ultimate life. When you hear something is impure or unclean, that's a moral category. A man who has leprosy is not sinful because he has leprosy. He's unclean and not in a position made ready or fit to serve in the, the service of the holy in the temple. So we have to throw out some of these categories. Now, there was a number, how, a number of social consequences, however, because you can imagine if something is, I mean, this is human nature, right? Well, I don't have leprosy, so I'm clean and you're unclean. So they could take what's originally established in this structure and human beings can go farther with it and turn it into something it wasn't intended to do. So there are a number of consequences that this woman had to live with because she was rendered unclean for 12 years in first century Israel. And what I'd like to do is sort of invite you into the shoes of this woman to give you a picture of what her life would have been like because she's now ritually unclean for 12 years. What would that have looked like? Well, first, um, regarding her family, it might have meant that she had lost connection with friends and family. Maybe none of them wanted to be anywhere near her. If you might recall from a story of leprosy, like the lepers are treated horribly, get them out of the city. We don't want to be anywhere near them. So it's likely that she would have lost connection with friends and family. Now these are modern examples, but just picture like 12 birthdays, you know? 12 birthdays where you're not celebrated. 12 birthdays where you don't hear happy birthday. 12 Christmases. 12 birthdays of other family members. Your niece who you love. Your nephew who you love. The missed birthdays, the missed Christmases, the missed celebrations. And maybe after three, four, five, six years of it, you start to wonder, I wonder if anyone even notices that I'm gone. I'm sure they might have missed me the first one. They probably forgot about me by now. There was implications for her married life as well. If she had this condition, a man would not marry her in this particular historical situation. And if she was married and had this condition, this ailment hit after her marriage, we know she likely would have been divorced. That, and we have historical documentation, historical writings that show the kind of attitude of men towards women that had that type of ailment, and she probably would have been immediately divorced. Now that leads to her children. Likely she didn't have kids. And there's a sentiment at this time regarding women who don't have children. It's reflected in the book of First Enoch. The book of First Enoch is not in the Bible, but it's a Jewish uh, book that was well read at the time of Jesus. And in it, it says that by their own deeds and the work of their own hands does a woman die childless. In other words, if you are a woman that dies without having children, it's not only a bad and shameful thing, but you brought it upon yourself. It's your fault you have no kids.
Next, there was the religious consequence. We know from Josephus, a first century historian, that the rules regarding people who had unclean conditions were well enforced in the temple. Therefore, someone who had leprosy or a bodily discharge like this was not allowed into the temple complex. In other words, you couldn't go to the place God was. So start adding this up, like feel the weight of it. My family's probably forgot me. I have no husband, I have no children, and people tell me that it's my fault. And maybe it is because I can't even go to the temple where my supposed God lives. And maybe, maybe he doesn't even want me there. Maybe he hates me. You know what? He does hate me because obviously my life is cursed. I'm rejected, I am nobody, no one loves me, no one knows that I'm missing, no one cares if I'm gone. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Have you been told lies in life so long that you actually start to believe them? Maybe it's from a relative, a spouse, or maybe you grew up in a home where mom and dad treated you horribly. And sooner or later you go, you know what? I am worthless. I am a reject. I am unloved. And if all of that is true, and if there's someone up there, then he has to hate me too. My life is cursed. And some of you have been at that point. No one cares. No one loves me. Then there was economic consequence. She couldn't have a normal job, so she would be brought into poverty eventually. We'll see in a moment that's exactly where she's at. So you have someone who's economically desperate, cut off in a religious sense, and relationally completely deprived. You've got to feel the weight of what it's like to be that woman. That's what she's been carrying around with her. This is Mark's account, the different biography of the life of Jesus that we just read in Matthew. Now look for some differences. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even the fringe of his garments, I will be made well. What's different? What do you notice? It's verse 26. Yeah, she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had. So this is a woman who might have been wealthy, who might have had some money, but over the 12 years she's depleted all the money she's had and now she's absolutely desperate. She has no hope. And she's also suffered under the physicians. Why is that important? Because over the 12-year period, she's been trying to find a cure for this ailment, and nothing's worked. Now, there are quotes from the literature of this time period that talk about physicians being good people who could heal you. But there's also a lot of quotes about a lot of physicians who are just scam artists. You have this sickness, come to us and we'll give you some recipe for your healing. We're going to fix it up for you. And then what happens? They give you some pseudo-cure, they take your money, and then you're gone. The Talmud, which is a giant compilation of Jewish documents composed several hundred years after the time of Jesus, but it reflects things in the, in the, in the time of Jesus, says that there is no less than 11 different cures for this type of ailment. No less than 11. Some of them are silly. Some of them are incredibly brutal. 
One of them, for instance, says that you are to carry an ostrich egg in a linen bag for the summer. Some of them involve things like donkey dung. So you can imagine how this woman has suffered for these 12 years, desperately trying to find a cure. She's rejected, alone, isolated, economically deprived, and absolutely desperate. And so she says, I've heard reports that there's a man named Jesus. He might be able to heal me. And she tells her, she says to herself, if I touch even the fringe of his garments, I will be made well. Now, what's up with that statement? The fringe of the garment is not just like the edge of my clothing. This is a technical term that is referring to something specific. And we know exactly what it's referring to from the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers says this. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it should be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So what's on the corner? What's the fringes? It's these tassels. Now questions, what do the tassels represent? What's the function of these tassels? When you look at the tassels, you are to remember all the commandments of the Lord. So you put on your clothes and you have this thing hanging down and now you remember all the commandments of the Lord. Now, question, what are the commandments of the Lord in this case? Well, this is the book of Numbers. It's a part of a section of scripture that's called the Torah or the Pentateuch or the law. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, another question. What's in the Torah? What's in the law? There's 613 commands that govern all of the life of Israel, but what in specific is in those books? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Go back two books. Leviticus. What was in Leviticus? Leviticus chapter 15. The laws describing what makes something clean and unclean. Now follow this. There's a woman from the fringe of society who's going to reach for the fringe of a garment. But it's not just the fringe of a garment. That fringe is a symbolic embodiment of all of Torah, all of the laws of God, all 613 of them. And in those 613 laws, in the embodiment of all the commands of God, are the very laws of Leviticus 15 that include the laws that determine her rejection. She's going to reach for the symbol of God's law in desperation. Now, it's even further than that because there's layers to this, tons of layers. A few chapters ago, if you were here, you remember that Jesus healed a paralytic man and he forgave him of his sins. And we talked about how when people read that Jesus forgave that man of sins, they immediately jump to the conclusion that says, oh, it's because Jesus is God and he can forgive sins, right? But there's much more than that. Because in the Old Testament, in first century Israel, there was a way to have the pronouncement of forgiveness of sins established. And where did that take place? In Jerusalem, on the mountain, at the temple. Now, why could sins be forgiven at the temple? 
because that's the place where God dwells, right? The one place you can have the pronouncement of the forgiveness of sins is at the temple with the priest, with the rite and ritual, because God himself lives in the holy of holies. Therefore, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, it's not merely a way to say, I have the authority to forgive sins. It's him saying, I can do what the temple does. I'm going around, he's going around northern Galilee forgiving sins and doing what the temple did. He is bypassing the temple institution and saying, whatever occurred over at that place, I have the authority to do it in my own self. He is a living, walking, breathing temple, going around northern Galilee forgiving sins. Now, there's more layers to this because um, where is the place that you could go to have a priest perform the ritual and have you pronounced clean if you were previously unclean? The temple. The temple with the priest is where you go. However, there's some problems though because there's some issues that arise if you approach the holy place in an improper manner. So what happens if you approach the temple or say the holy of holies in an improper manner in the Old Testament? What could happen? Or let me ask it another way. For those of you who know your Old Testament Bible trivia, there's a man who... Um, in a not approved way, touches the Ark of the Covenant. And what happens to him? Dead. He just dies. Okay, here's another example. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is taken into heaven and he sees the Lord sitting on the throne and the train of his robe, it fills the temple with glory. And what does he do? Isaiah says, woe is to me for I am undone. I am an unclean man with unclean lips brought into the holy place. Woe is to me, I am undone. He's undone. He's going to come, come apart at the very fabric of his being. That's a very fancy way of saying, woe is to me, I am going to die. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips and I'm brought into the holy. I'm going to die. You touch the Ark of the Covenant in an inappropriate manner. You die. Now, do you see the layers stacking upon each other? There is an unclean woman who is going to go into a crowd of people and she is going to go from the fringes and reach for the fringe of a garment and touch the symbolic representation of the sum total of God's law, the very laws that talk about her unclean nature. But in doing so, she's also going to the living, walking, breathing temple, the one that can forgive sins. And if he can forgive sins, maybe he could do something else. And maybe, just maybe, that story I heard about a man with leprosy who was unclean just like me being healed, maybe there's some truth to that. So in desperation, when all her money is dried up and she's tried all the physicians and has no other hope, she does the unthinkable. She rushes into the holy place and makes an attempt to touch the holy one. Now read this one more time. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Now do you feel the tension? That woman being in that crowd was unlawful. Remember what it said? 
Anyone who comes into contact, now this whole scene is being made unclean. And she's going to go and touch Jesus. Now, oftentimes at this point, people say, man, the woman risked a lot because Jesus was a well-respected well-respect, Jewish rabbi that she reached out. He could have turned and said, what are you doing? You're an unclean woman. Now all these people are contaminated. You need to get out of here type of thing. And yes, it's true that she approached a well-respected Jewish rabbi, but it's more than that. She approaches the living, walking, breathing temple, holy, almighty God, And when that which is unclean approaches the judge of heaven and earth, life and death are in the balance. But she says, maybe, maybe what I've heard of this man is true. Maybe he can make me clean. If only I touch his garment. That's the tension of this passage. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So you see how it's just like three or four verses and you go, oh, this is another story about Jesus' miraculous powers. No, 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 no. There's much more going on. And there's something else even going on here because it's not just that she receives physical healing because that's great. She receives physical healing and that which is unclean is made clean. Something more even important than that. How does he address her? 12 years of rejection, 12 years of isolation, 12 years of not having a family, the Christmases, the birthday party, the feelings of desperation, the loss of hope. Now the most important person in the crowd, the most important person in the world, looks at you and says, daughter. That's family language. You belong here. You matter. I know you. I know your name. You are daughter. You were never forgotten. So she searched for one miracle, a healing of her body. But Jesus heals much more than that. He goes into the darkness of her very soul and calls out the darkness and says, you're mine. You're my girl, my daughter. Now, in the midst of all of that tension and suspense, we probably forgot that there's something that introduced us into this woman. There's a whole nother story hanging in the balance because the only reason why Jesus is here is because he went to the, was on his way to the ruler of the synagogue's house because a 12-year-old girl had died. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. Now, some historical information that's important. Jesus walks into the scene, and there's a commotion, and it says there's flute players. You're going, what's going going on? In this culture, and in many cultures, there would have been paid professional mourners. People who, as soon as someone was pronounced dead, they would come in and start crying and wailing and screaming and playing flutes. It's really interesting. This is not just Jewish culture, but many cultures specifically single out the flute. And there are certain melodies that the flute would play. And so you have this flute playing, these melodies, and then you have people screaming and wailing and crying. Now we look upon that and say, that's kind of, like, kind of weird. You're going to pay people to cry? And we can often look down upon ancient cultures, but we fail to see the wisdom there. There's an immense amount of wisdom there. 
Here's the idea. Someone has got to get the grieving going. You have to start the process. Now, one of the saddest things in our culture is that when someone starts the grieving, and maybe it's not over death, maybe it's anything. You're talking with a friend, and all of a sudden you, you start to shed a tear. What do you immediately say to the person? I'm sorry. Why do we say sorry for grief? What in the, why are we apologizing for the expression of grief? What madness is that? And so there would be a way to get the grieving process going. And then on top of that, you know that sometimes you need other people to begin that process on your behalf. Because, you know, you've, been tra- you've trained yourself not to cry. I'm not going to cry. Say you're at a funeral. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. You know, though, you might tell yourself, I can't look at so-and-so because if I see them crying, I will melt. You know, I can't look at dad. If I look at dad and dad's crying, the whole family is going to lose it. We're all going to melt. And so what do you do? These ancient cultures said, we're going to get that process going. There's going to be crying and grieving and song, and it's going to create this commotion. Now, there's actually a reference to one rabbinical teaching that says even the poorest person in a community should have at least two flute players and one mourner at the, at the, the, the death scene. It's like, you're going to make it mandatory that the poorest person has these professionals there? And again, there's wisdom there. Here's the idea. Even the most poor, forgotten, neglected person in your community should have people crying on their behalf when they die. It's a way to say, in our community, no one dies without being grieved. Every single loss of life, there will be tears shed for, no matter what. We don't let anyone die in our community without being noticed and you'd hear the flutes, and you would hear the wailing and the crying. This is really powerful. Now, this man is a ruler of a synagogue, so there would have been a much louder commotion than just two flute players and a couple people crying. Picture this scene. 12-year-old girl has just died. There's commotion. There is crying. There is wailing. There's the pros, and then people who are just honestly expressing their grief. And Jesus comes and it's like he's too late. The mourning process, the burial process is already beginning. And Jesus steps into the scene and he says, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. What you need to know is that when Jesus says go away, it says go away. It's probably more like get out of here or I cast you out. The Greek word that's used here is the Greek word ekbalo. And that is the same word that is used over and over again in the New Testament for when Jesus cast out demons. When Jesus cast out a demon, he ekbalos them out of the human. So what does Jesus do? He sees the mourning. He sees the flute players. He sees the crying. They're prepared to accept this death. And he says, get out of here. He casts them out as if they were spiritual beings of death. Like that's how harsh the language is. Get out of here. And then... Jesus takes the mother and father, and we're also informed from a different gospel account that he takes Peter, James, and John, so just a few people. He takes them into the room of the girl, and he's about to put his hand on her. Now picture the scene. It's almost as if the the volume is turned to 100 and it goes to zero. Flute, commotion, and then absolute silence. He opens the door. What's the number one thing that makes you unclean? A corpse. From commotion to silence, Jesus walks in the room 
brings mom and dad and three of his disciples, and he reaches out and touches the body of the dead girl that would technically make him unclean for seven days. But what occurs is the opposite. It says that the girl arose and that the report of this went throughout all the district. In Mark's account, it says that Jesus touches her and he says, Talitha kumai, it's Aramaic for rise little lamb or little lamb awake. It's family type language. Come on, little girl, little lamb, it's time to get up. And what you see is not Jesus being made unclean, but you see the living, walking, breathing temple. God himself in the flesh, touching that which was unclean. And now rather than having the unclean nature pass to him, he passes his life to that which is unclean. It's the inversion and the flipping upside down of the usual system. It's heavy. Jesus touches the girl. Wake up, little lamb. Wake up. Now, immediately after this, it says, Jesus passed on from there, and two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. I want to focus your attention on the phrase, What do they call Jesus? They call Jesus the son of David. Now, if you were here way back when we started the Gospel of Matthew, you remember that in chapter 1 is a giant genealogy. And in that giant giant genealogy is a message. Jesus is the son of David. Now, why is that significant and important? Well, because a thousand years before the time of Jesus, God promises David something. He promises King David this. He says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him. And I took it as I took it from him who was before you. And here's the key part. I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. There is a son of David who will have an everlasting kingdom. So in one sense, people think this is probably referring to Solomon or something. One of David's sons. And in one sense, when you read, it's like, yeah, that kind of sounds like Solomon. But then in another sense, it's like, well, it doesn't quite map out upon Solomon either. This guy's going to have an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that knows no end. Like there's something fundamentally different about a particular son of David. Now, go back to the, to, to the two blind men. Jesus passes by, and they're crying aloud, have mercy on a son of David. Now, this is a clue into the fact that they know something's different about this guy. He's not just a normal guy that's doing some miraculous thing. He is the rightful son of David. And then Jesus asks him, do you think I can cure you of your blindness? And they say, yes. Now, this is way more significant than you might originally anticipate it. Because, okay, you call me the son of David. Do you think I can heal you? You think I can make blind eyes see? You think I can do that? And they say, yes, Lord, we do. Question. What other prophet in the Old Testament cured people of blindness? Bible trivia time. Who is it? 
Moses, Elijah, nobody, nobody, trick question. In the Old Testament, you have the sea parted, you have 10 plagues, you have people brought back to life, you have people taken alive by chariots of fire into the heavens, you have miracles unthinkable. But no prophet ever makes a blind man's eyes see. So when the blind men tell Jesus, you are the son of David, we believe you can make us see. They are acknowledging there's something different and significant about this individual. The recovery of sight to the blind was a miracle reserved for the messianic age. It was something that only God himself would be able to do when his kingdom had finally come in completeness and totality. And these blind men are saying, we don't got it all figured out. Like they clearly don't have it all figured out, but they know enough to say, son of David, you can cure our eyes. You can fix them. They said to him, yes, Lord, we believe. Verse 29, then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Now, for all the awesomeness that these, these three miracles show us, it ends here in a horrible way. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. They got excited. You would too. Don't give them a hard time. <laughs> Jesus says, hey, don't, we, don't need, we don't need to make a big commotion about this. Healing of sight's a big deal. Healing of blind eyes is a very big deal. We don't need to talk about this too much. They just go out immediately. And everyone blames these guys. They're so disobedient. Yeah, so are you. You would have told your best friend immediately. Give him a break. Okay. There's so much to talk about, but I want to come back and, and just focus on one thing at this point. And, and it, it has to deal with the woman who was healed after having the bodily discharge for 12 years. Having a sense of belonging and acceptance is so incredibly important. And it's weird how, how important it is to us. Like, as human beings, we want to, to know and to be known on a very profound and significant level. You know, it's, it's a horrible feeling to feel like you're unwanted. And we all experience that to different degrees. Like, sometimes it's just as simple as we mentioned before. Like, you're in a room, and everyone's talking. And you're going like, no one even, like, no one even cares that I'm here. Like, no one asking me my opinion. I can just post, like, like, watch, I'll just stand here. No one will engage me. And you, you felt that, I know, everyone has. You felt like you're not important, you're not wanted, or maybe sometimes even worse than being unwanted is not, people don't even know that you're there. Statistically speaking, in America, on the low end, 40%, on the high end, 60%, but between 40 and 60% of all Americans are lonely, which is crazy because we are supposedly the most connected generation that's ever lived. But technical advancements didn't actually aid our relational kind of abilities. In fact, we're more lonely than we've ever been, isolated. And that's a horrible feeling. I mean, this woman for 12 years, the birthdays, the Christmases, the rejection, maybe God doesn't even love me. Does my family remember after year five, do they even remember me around Christmas time? And what's, what's weird about this is, is, is we wrestle with this even if we've had a relatively good life. So let's say you grew up in a very loving family. 
Um, and you, every night you came around the dinner table, you told stories, you were, you were told by mom and dad, we love you, you're precious. Even then, you grow up and there's moments in life where you're, am I wanted? Like, does my spouse even love me? I mean, I know they love me, but I'm not sure they actually want me around. You know? It's like, I could just go in the room and they won't even care if I'm gone for four hours. They'll just keep doing their thing. And then that feeds into like your, your thought patterns. It's like, you know, no one, no one would even notice if I'm gone. I'm unwanted. And that's when you've had a great life. Imagine that woman after 12 years. Or imagine even worse, and some of you, this is your story. You grew up in a household where you never felt loved by mom and dad. Maybe they weren't even there. Maybe they weren't even around. And so you grow up, and eventually, just like that woman, you have all these things that happen, and pretty soon you start to, start to tell yourself, no, they're not lies. They're the truth. I am unwanted. I am unknown. I am rejected. I am unloved. And if all of that is true in my earthly life, then there, if there is a God in heaven, he must not care either. I'm cursed just like that woman. You go and wrestle through all of those emotions, There's a YouTube channel I watch. I think I mentioned it once before, but it's a man who interviews people from extreme walks of, of life. They find themselves in desperate situations. So he interviews people who are on the streets, living homeless, people who have substance abuse issues, prostitutes. Um, and I was watching one where he was interviewing a young woman, probably mid-20s, roughly, it was hard to say. But um, she had substance abuse issues and she was a prostitute. And he's interviewing her and asking her a few questions. And eventually he says, so um, you f how was your childhood? You feel like your parents loved you? And she says, no, my parents didn't love me. And he goes, well, what happened? He's like, a bunch of horrible stuff. And I was taken from them. And then I was put into the foster system. And did you feel love there? No, my foster parents didn't care for me. I ran away from them because that was just as bad as my, my biological parents. And so I've been on the streets. He goes, have you ever felt loved? No. Have you ever been in love? No. Do you feel that anyone has ever loved you? No. And the sad thing is, according to her story, that might be true. Then he asks her, what are you afraid of? She says, I'm afraid of dying, but not in the normal sense. I'm afraid that I am going to die in my tent. Remember, she's homeless. I'm going to die in my tent or behind some building and no one will know that I died. I wasn't afraid of death. I'm afraid that when I die, no one will know that I died. That I'll just be in that tent for a few weeks before someone finds me because no one on earth cares about me in the least. That's heavy. And we all have different degrees in which we can experience thoughts like that. Some, it's not that big of a deal, but some of you, you relate to that. No one loves, no one even care. And what's so sad about her story is her parents didn't show her that love. The people in her life didn't show her that. The streets didn't show her. Nothing showed her that. And so her, you can't just immediately tell her and look at her and be like, oh no, it's okay because tons of people would know because your family still loves you. No, maybe not. And there's a weight to that rejection, a weight to that loneliness. Now, here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
even if the whole world forgets you, the most important man in the crowd, the most important man in the world, will never forget you. He knows how many needles she put in her arms, and he knows every hair on her head, and he knows her name. And just like that woman, he extends his hand and says, daughter, you are welcomed into this family. This is one of the great gifts the church offers the world. The church announces to a hurting and broken world that there is a place for them at the table. And you have to understand there is power in that. To those who have been rejected, to those who have been lost, to those who didn't feel loved, to those who are on the fringes, to be able to look someone in the eyes and to say, there is a place at the table for you. Now picture that woman. She peeks into one of the fancy hotels she walks by and she sees a banquet going on. And she kind of sneaks in to see this nice banquet and there's all these people with nice clothes and she peeks in and then someone goes up to her, excuse me, ma'am, and takes her by the hand. And she, you know, she would immediately say, okay, they're kicking me out, I'm in trouble. And then imagine someone walking her over to the banqueting table and then the host of this celebration walks up to her and says, I am so glad you're here. And he pulls out a chair and calls her by name and says, sit down, baby girl. Sit down, daughter. That is what the church offers the world, the good news of Jesus Christ. And there is a world that is in desperate need of hearing that. We are alone, isolated. We have feelings of rejection. Our story says, our king has saved a chair for you, saved the place, and we get to tell people that. And so for those of us who need to hear that, you need to know, you need to feel that. No matter what's in your past, no matter who's betrayed you, he's reserved a place for you. And for those of us who maybe not, we don't wrestle with those types of things, re remember, this is what you offer the world. 60% of people are lonely. You can just befriend tell someone and tell them what Jesus has done for you and evangelism will just magically occur. In one sense, it's difficult for evangelism in the modern world. In another sense, it's like the easiest time ever. Tell people there's a place for them at the table. This is our gift to the world. And we're going to transition to communion, which encapsulates all of this. Because what do we call communion? One of the names is the Lord's table. The Lord's table. And we are all here today as the family of God. And Christ himself has invited us to his table. We weren't seeking after it. From heaven, he sought us. He left heaven, he came down, shot out the invites, and brought us in by our hand because we never dared to go in on our own behalf. He brings us in and he sits you down. Son, daughter, I'm so glad you're here. So the Lord's table, this bread and this cup embody all of this. Let's stand as we take communion. So there was a woman who lived on the fringes, probably outside of the city, who was an outcast and rejected. And she was brought in, brought into the table. 
Now, how does this all occur? How did that happen for the women and how did it happen to you? Because one was rejected in order that we might be accepted. One was brought out of the city, away from the people, and died the cursed man's death upon a cross. And he went into death, which is the very source and substance of that which is unclean. He goes into the source and substance and comes out victorious on the other side. He was rejected and afflicted on our behalf so that we might know acceptance and be given a chair at his table. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Take this and remember. Likewise, Jesus takes a cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. When you forget how much you matter, you remind yourself you were blood-bought. Someone laid down their life. You were purchased with an innocent man's blood to get you here, to get you to this table. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful and proclaim your life, death, and resurrection until you return. And so, Father, we want to honor your Son as we close. We want to honor the person and work of your Son. May the name of Jesus be lifted high as we end this service. We thank you that you reserved a space for us, that we were never forgotten, we were never alone. You knew every hair on our head and you know us by name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.